Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moon and waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 619. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. New Year 2020. I hope you've had a blast over the festive season and I hope you are all well and raring to go for this 2020. To press record today to do this show has took me 25 minutes to work out all my plugs. Because Miss I'm spelled out. Mrs. S unplugged Christmas lights, fairy lights, this, that, the other. It just didn't work when I came down this. She's in the kitchen, so I've got to be bloody quiet. Just had a little bit of a set too with Mrs. S about it. But anyways, here we are. We're on number 619. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is Permanent Residency by Philip Wilgren. And kicking off this new year as well, we also have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So before we jump in, did you just have a blast over the, the festive times? With There's one little incident there that is, we've got, as you know, three dogs. And they're in here now, you know, as the fire's on and it's all cosy, cosy, very early in the morning. And we decided to get, because sometimes they're a little bit a little bit wild in the house. So we decided to get these Carmen mats. Now, I don't know if you've known about them or hear about them. They're about 12 inches square and they're rigid. And you actually 
squashing food for them, like a kind of a wet food, and they lick it. And it was the worst thing we've ever bought in the terms of common things for the dog. It was just hell, pandemonium. They just, even, you know, our kitchen's quite a long kitchen. And even one at the sink, one in the middle. I mean, you're talking probably about, say, a 15 meter length, you know, the kitchen. Oh, they was just fighting and everything because they did what one wanted all three. One, you know what I mean? It was just bedlam. And that was on, like, they got them. They got them as the Christmas presents. <laughs> they just took them off them. They spoiled themselves. Oh, man. Anyway, what? Let us know what kind of if you got some funky presents or some funky books for Christmas. That would be fantastic. The kind of yeah, just to give us a little heads up. If books, especially, what have you been? What you know, reading? Is there anything out there good or TV shows? Because I've been through them all at the moment, and in the end, I loved Star Wars. Yes, The Mandalorian. I did. I, I got a bit lost with it, and not lost with it, but I just thought, but it, it kind of pulled itself around, and I would probably give it, I'd say, you've got to watch it, but I'll probably give it about an eight and a half, I think. Yes, yeah, something went round there, and it wasn't doing that at all for us. I loved The Watchmen, thought that was fantastic. I haven't as yet watched i've watched the very first episode of the man in the high castle so at the moment i'm going to probably go through that if i can give us some recommendations i've been through the watcher not the watcher the witcher it was all right to be quite a little bit of fun and i need some recommendations i'm kind of on this kind of plateau of, of, of nothing to be honest so he has a couple of New Year's resolutions for I'm trying to get good biology back into my lifestyle and, and a lot of gut stuff. So I've done that. I'm doing dry January. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to eat a lot of greens. Dry January. And I've took off all news apps. So I'm not going to listen to the news or anything like that for at least a month. You know what I mean? That's when we try. I'm learning chess as well. There you go. Yeah. We got... It's a, it's just like you know when they were kids as well. We've got lots of presents for you know like for, for the kids and that. But the, one of the Reed's cheapest little things was this little chess set, and the whole family and friends has been kind of around it. So we're all learning chess at the moment, desperately scrabbling to kind of <laughs> to beat the other person. So that is my New Year's resolutions as well. Cutting out news, not bothered about that no more. Trying to get good biology, all your, your biome all sorted. Drink, and I'll probably be able to do that one, the drink, to be honest. I'm not a kind of guzzler, no more. And well, we'll see, yeah, we'll see. Anyway, <laughs> we'll see. First sign of a wobble, I'll have a drink. Anyway, straight on to the main fiction. So, like I say, it is Philip Wilkren and Permanent Residency. I'll give you a little heads up about Philip. By day, Philip is a mild-mannered communications officer and lecturer. By night, he turns into a frenzied, ten-fingered typist, clawing out jagged stories of fantasy and science fiction found in layers such as analogue, intergalactic medicine show, grimdark and daily SF. You can find him at, and there's a little link there to Philip's site, now, this story is narrated by Cheyenne Wright. 
Cheyenne is a freelance illustrator and concept artist. He is the colour artist of the three times Hugo Award-winning steampunk graphic novel series Genius Girl, Girl Genius, should I say, and the co-creator of many other fine works, including 50 Fathoms and any award-winning Deadlands Noir for the Savage Worlds RPG. He also produced graphics for Star Trek Online and the Champions MMO, and T-shirt designs for TV's Alton Brown. Cheyenne lives in Seattle with his wife and their daughter, and their ever-grown stack of unpainted miniatures. I love that. In his spare time, he's teaching himself animation and narrates short stories for various audio anthologies, where he's known as podcasting's Mr. Buttery Man Voice, and that's trademarked. <laughs> that's shy, and that's just tickled me, that. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Permanent Residency by Philip Wilkgren By the end, the vote traders and desperates converge on the voting stations. Maven knows this, knows that it is hopeless. But without the votes, he will die. That doesn't pain him, not much. But Sillin and the kids, that does. He had hoped to protect them. But that was before Joseph Skiff decided to blow his fortune in a bid for the presidency. Upsetting all the costs. You buying or selling? The voice is young. But here, by the Windflow voting station... It doesn't say much. Affy neighborhoods are full of rejuves, and even the young hold power here. Power for sale. Are you offering? Maven asks. The Affy is young, truly young, with none of the tiny stretch marks around the eyes that marks a rejuve. She's taller than him, a lot. Less malnutrition and more gene editing. Her hair not so much blonde as silver with streaks of yellow. Her hazsuit is red with sunlight lightning bolts swirling from her cuffs and breasts. She smiles at him, her hazsuit deflecting the stinging rain that's worming its way below Maven's rubberized coveralls. Well, says Maven. It depends, Leafy says. How much have you got? Another smile, slightly uncertain this time. I've got twelve votes, she says. All fulls. Full votes are valuable. Owned by permanent residents and counting for sway in special petitions, Maven's got six. But it's still far from enough. He'd need two hundred to secure a life for Sillin and the kids. Two twenty to rescue himself, too. He needs someone desperate enough to sell cheap and who holds a block large enough to matter. But... Maybe he can pick up some votes on the cheap. The price? Maven asks. I'm more interested in buying, the Affy says. Again, the smile. I'm sort of collecting. You know how you've got to root for something larger than yourself to improve things? Well, Mr. Skiff, not interested, Maven interrupts. And the Affy nods. Slowly. Almost dejectedly. Let me know if you change your mind, she says. But Maven's already leaving. Windflow isn't the right place. Those living here can afford to vote for pleasure or for the fun of it. Even reject voting if they care enough to object to the system. Maven needs a miracle. 
and miracles don't happen in affy neighborhoods. The boar takes him to Ashton, the worn plastic couches and the twenty-person capsule stinking of disinfectant, almost masking the stench of sour rain and vomit from the passengers. Ashton is prole territory, lots of disenfranchised and sellouts, but that means less competition. Nobody really trades on prole turf, not enough money in it, but if there's anyone there, anyone who hasn't sold their vote already or signed on to be disenfranchised in exchange for a steady dole, they will be eager to sell. Proles can't afford to vote. That makes them desperate, and desperate is good. Maven spots her immediately, the red-suited windflow Affy with the sunbursts. She's standing by the voting station, a concrete bunker with four entrances and enough ID taggers to give even serious vote violators pause. There's a lawbot near the station, its six armored legs clicking against the concrete pavement. It's far enough from the Affy to make it being here a plausible coincidence. Somebody has sprayed war on its carapace. Hey, says the Affy, all friendly and nice. What are you doing here? Maven doesn't even try to hide his hostility. To get here before him, she must have taken an express capsule. Throwing away money to beat him. But there are no desperates waiting near the station, so she's come here for nothing. Miss, the speaker is a prole, an old white woman, skin flaking from rain and yard crawling. Her clothes are three sizes too big, hanging on her like blue bags. Maybe a son or a neighbor lending her his fully funded work clothes? She's holding out a data spike. A desperate, maybe even a minor trader, offering up her family's votes. Maven steps up, readout ready, already displaying his account balance. The woman passes him, holds out her spike to the Affy. The Affy takes it, slots it into her registry, a licensed registry, ID tagged and secure. Miss? My money? says the prole. Maven stares at her, disbelief shading into rage. The Affy holds up her palm, waiting for the ownership confirmation to come through the network. When it does, she taps wrists with the prole, touching data bands. The prole's data band buzzes, and Maven quickly bends to scan the readout before the prole covers her with her hand. Three hundred. One part of his mind is burning, trying to spit out the right curse to hurl at the Affy. Another's crying at 300 per vote. He'd need almost 60,000 to get the votes he needs. He's got 4K. Less now, a capsule having costed 0.8 creds. It's the screaming part that wins. Shanking Affy Wastelick, he screams. Prol hag, cunt click. That was my shanking vote. The lawbot flashes him. Red and blue light refracting from the raindrops. It clatters closer to the Affy. What's your shanking problem, she says, sticking her nose up. Maven closes his eyes and strangles the impulse to punch her. My family's the problem, he hisses. What, she says. You've got six votes registered. 2K easy. That not enough for you? Need a new garbage still for your mansion or something? Maven's breath keeps hissing past his teeth. He still has the urge to punch her, but now the crying is building up, too. We're going to get wasted, he says. Kicked out of the shaking Arco. Go grub for junk metal in the chem swamps, kids and all. The Affy's eyebrows shoot up. 
but Maven is already stomping away, wiping the tears from his eyes with his fists. She's waiting for him when he reaches Zinian Heights. It's a middle-class neighborhood, and traders abound. Mids are affluent enough to hold out for a good price, but sufficiently needy to be pressed into a bad deals, especially as the polls near closing. Thus, the voting station swarms with traders. Maven counts twelve without walking all the way to the station. They've taken up roosts in the coffee shops and park benches, vultures drinking chai lattes. How much? Maven asks the closest one, a man reclining beneath a gigantic century oak with drip protectors stretched out between its thick branches. Two fifty, the man says. And to buy? Five hundred, Maven swallows a curse. It's an opening bid in a negotiation, nothing more. How about bulk, he asks. I can give you sixty at four seventy-five, the trader says. Too much. The trader shrugs. Find somebody else. He'll come down. As the polling approaches its end, the prices will come down. Nobody wants to sit around on unused votes after closing. But there will be buyers from the big candidates. Skiff is sucking up votes, Barley and the Progressive Party spending like Christmas to stop him. With the race close, there will be a fight to the end. Cautious traders have already sold. Now it's the gamblers who remain. Pushing as near to closing time as possible, hoping for a big payout. Hey, says the red-suited Affy. Hey! Maven ignores her, but she hurries after him. Hey, I just want to talk. He turns on her, stopping so suddenly she almost runs into him. Maven nearly headbutts her chin. What? he says. Want to look at the wasty? Well, here I am. And not a shanking chemboil on me. He throws up his arms, flinging raindrops from his cuffs. The yeah, Affy steps back, not retreating, but drawing away. Her kind never retreats. It's Maven who retreats, circling the voting station, talking to the vultures. He wastes an hour, the Affy shadowing him and never gets a price below 400. In the end, he leaves the heights, an hour poorer, right as the first buyers roll in, in their licensed limos. The Affy stops him at the bore station, waiting for him at the bottom of the stairs. All the ads flashed onto the rough-hewn concrete ceiling, shading into reds and golds. The only good thing about Affies, the ad taggers, ignore anyone else when they're near. Where are you going? the Affy asks. Maven considers ignoring her, but she'll be able to buy his travel data as soon as he gets a ticket. Skyside, he says. And then, because he's far from home and hasn't got anyone else to talk to, he adds, sometimes leavers give away their votes. You believe that? Says the Affy. And once again, Maven has to fight to unclench his fists. Lower the eyebrows, lady, he says. Friend of mine saw it happen once. Did he get the vote? The Affy asks. She, and no. Some guy out of Tin Town got it. And the Affy snorts. Bait and switch. She says, oldest trick in the book. As if you'd know, says Maven. What are you, ten? That stings. The Affy's cheeks coloring, her breath catching. I'm nineteen, she says, looking hurt. Score one for the proletariat. Probably the only one Maven will get this day. He turns his back on her. 
Hey, she says, it's a half-hour bore, with a switch at Grant. I'll drip for an express. Now it's Maven's eyebrows that rise. Yeah, he says, if you answer a question. Maven nods to himself. Nothing's free with an affy. But going express would save him some time. Capsule first, he says. They ride in a four-man capsule, clean, black leather seats, chrome trim, warm and dry. It smells of plums and fresh-baked pie. An advert for a chain bakery rolling on the discreet screen in the corner. What do you want to know, Maven says. On your full residency petition, the Effie says, you listed seven, with a possible extension to eight. Yes. The Effie chews on her lip and wipes her palm on her has suit as if she's afraid or embarrassed. Who are they? she asks. Maven almost chokes out a laugh. Of all the things to ask, she could have looked it up in the petition database, purchased their personnel files from city accounting, but a deal is a deal, and he's writing express. My husband, he says, and our children. He taps his readout and flicks her an image. Sillin, he says, and our kids. The affy slides out a see-through, thin as a wisp of wind, and hangs it from her brow. Her eyes shift focus as she stares at the image. The see-through is perfectly transparent to Maven, hiding even the flashes of reflected light from Affie's retinas. Are they engineered? She asks after a second. No. But you're Latasian and your husband's white, she says. Your kids are black. Men and Nero, Maven says. Their mothers were friends of ours. We claimed their kids when they got wasted. Same with Oscar. Why? Maven sighs. So they wouldn't get wasted, of course. Children don't get wasted, the Affy says, until they reach minority. If they can't show stable income or a sponsor when they reach 12 years, they get repatriated to their parental location. The Affy blinks. Her sunbursts flare momentarily. The capsule's background music switches to nature and bird chirps. The wastes, she says. Yeah, Maven says. But if they're added to a resident family, they can't be repatriated. They ride in silence. The only noise is the periodic thunk of the electromagnets, shifting the capsule into a different bore. Cold, the Effie says, finally. What is? Willingly leaving their kids? Just so they'll grow up in the Arcos, the Affy says. So they'll grow up at all, Maven says. The wastes are a death sentence. But the refugee camps are full and starving. The Affy chews on her lip again. She's looking like she failed at the aptitude test and is trying to avoid being disenfranchised. You could vote for Skiff, she says. He's promised to stop the wastings. So did the progressives, and knew, and proles still get wasted, says Maven. Look, says the Affy, I know it isn't always fair, but you got to root for others to improve things. Voting for yourself won't improve society. It will improve my part of it, says Maven. The Affy snorts. Nobody gets wasted without cause, she says. It sounds like a stock phrase, the kind you'd hear from a talking head reel. Maven clenches his fists. 
presses them to his sides, runs a hand through his wet, thinning hair, breathes slowly on the effie stairs. He sighs. A year ago, we ran into a gang of pearl-baiters. Nero got a coffee bulb in the face. I got mad. Selin tried to break it up. Oh, says the Effie. Didn't the judge rule in favor of the Effies? Sure, says Maven. And proles get their residency reduced to temp status. For some reason, this gets to the Effie. The courts are fair, says the Effie. She sounds hurt, like a kicked puppy. They're fair, if you're rich. They're fair to all, insists the Effie. One person, one vote. You can always cast your vote to sway a cause. Yeah, says Maven, especially if you sold it already or gone on the dole. The Affy blinks. Her sunbursts glimmer, causing sparks to dance across the capsule. Those who accept a patron get their patron's protection, she says, as if that's the best argument left to her. Maven gives her a mirthless laugh. Look up the sentencing percentages for proles and affies some day, he says, or pay someone to do it for you. Isn't that what affies do? Or is that too much work for you? The capsules display dinks, the deceleration making them rock in their seats. The affie looks like she's about to argue more, but Maven stands, turns away from her. The affie doesn't press him. Instead, she stands too. As he's about to exit the capsule, she puts a hand on his arm. Who's the eighth, she asks. The one option to get kicked out if you ran out of votes. Me, says Maven, and walks out into the rain. The Affy doesn't follow. There aren't any vote-givers in Skyside, only crowds of hopefuls and a few traitors. In the end, Maven buys another eight votes with his and Cillin's savings. Four thousand I-creds for eight votes. It's a ridiculous sum. They could have gotten supplies with that money. But supplies are pointless in the wastes. All they do is make you starve slower, if you don't get robbed or killed for them. He casts the votes for his petition without much hope. There have been buyers even here. The giants are fighting it out to the bitter end. Minor petitions like his will get drowned in the vote flood, overshadowed and auto-discarded without reaching the weighted fraction of a per milli needed for approval. The only chance is the petition lottery. But that, too, is based on votes. The more votes, the larger a chance to win. Maven's never heard of anyone winning the lottery. Not a prole, at any rate. Still, each vote is a ticket. A chance to win that single approval by lottery. He takes the boar home, spending the ride between a drunk and a chuckling trader wannabe, pinging his friends and flashing his readout the entire ride. Nobody else exits at the Dells. Maven slouches up to the door. They've got it nice here, he and Cillin. A half-story to themselves, reinforced windows, and a steady payment to the law, making sure they will respond if anything happens. All about to be gone. He taps the door open, falls into Cillin's arms. No need for words. 
one look in Cylindos. They spend the evening holding each other, forcing smiles for the kids. The results won't be official until midnight. They can pretend until then. At 12.01, they tap their readouts, scrolling to their permanent residency petition. There are two voters in favor. Maven Treeman for 14 fulls, Ashley Morrington for 212. Maven doesn't recognize the name. His hand shakes as he taps the voter info. An image of Ashley comes up, young, with hair not so much blonde as silver, with streaks of yellow. He connects to the registry, makes a call. She picks up on the first buzz. Her red has suit in exchange for a black shirt that flickers with tiny LEDs as she moves. Maven opens his mouth, tries to speak, fails. He dries his tears with his hands. Why? He croaks. She shrugs. Embarrassed. Sometimes you've got to root for others to improve things, she says. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And there you go. Big thank you to Philip. Philip, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on board, sir, and Cheyenne. Oh, please, more, more, and more, more bios as well. You just tickled me there, made my day. Thank you so much, gentlemen. So... How is this, Amy? Come on, Amy. Get up to the mic there, lass. How are you doing? All the best for New Year, for 2020. Let's make this a blast. So, Ames! Hello, and Happy New Year, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. When I left you in December, I was talking about 
Three of the books in the new Film and Fiction Companion series from Peter Lang, International Academic Publishing. Those were two published in 2018 and one published in 2019. The Gothic, Cli-Fi, that is Climate Change Fiction, and Horror. And today I would like to talk about the most recent volume in that series, the most recent anthology, called Sci-Fi, A Companion, that is edited by Jack Fennell and published in 2019. And yes, folks, who has two thumbs and is a contributor to this volume? This gal. Yep, I was very fortunate that Jack Fennell invited me to contribute a work of scholarship to this anthology, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about my particular work in a bit. But first, I want to talk about how this work serves as an overview of science fiction and how it sort of encapsulates where critical thinking about science fiction happens to be right now. So let's start with the official blurb and how it identifies and defines science fiction. What is sci-fi? Science fiction is a non-realist genre that foregrounds a sense of material plausibility, insisting that, despite seeming outlandish, it is consonant with history and the laws of nature. By turns subtle and bombastic, sci-fi revels in discovery and revelation, whether through human ingenuity or world-altering paradigm shifts. The same impulse informs both the idealism of Star Trek and the existential terror of Frankenstein. Each chapter of this book examines a specific trope or theme through a different critical lens, including eco-criticism, feminism, and historicism, while also providing a historical overview of the genre, from its disputed origins to the pulp era, the new wave, and the exponential growth of Afrofuturism and indigenous futurisms. Revered masters such as Isaac Asimov, Octavia Butler, and Ian M. Banks are considered alongside newer talents, including Rebecca Roanhorse and N.K. Jemison. Other chapters provide overviews of different media, from television, Doctor Who, Westworld, to comics, manga, 2000 AD, Metal Erlan, video games, Deus Ex Human Revolution, and theater. Alistair McDowell's X. Sci-Fi, a companion, not only provides an accessible introduction to sci-fi for general readers and researchers alike, but also illuminates new approaches to a familiar genre. So, there you have it. That is the description. So, how does the book go about offering this sort of sampling, this smorgasbord of scholarship? Well, the work opens with an introduction that deals with what the editor calls the fetish of origin, that is the contested origin of science fiction. Then part one kicks things off with a section on antecedents and history, and this includes distinct essays by different authors on science fiction and the gothic, on weird fiction, on space opera, and on the new wave. The next section is on figures, tropes, and themes, and it includes sections on aliens and robots and virtual life and posthumanism and time travel, alternate histories, 
and science fiction vampires. The next section is on issues and critical perspectives, and I'm very pleased to have my piece in there. The essays in this section include an essay on Afrofuturism, mine, which is on indigenous futurisms, then other essays on Australian science fiction, women's dystopian science fiction, gender roles and sexism, disability in science fiction, science fiction and climate change, science fiction and the Anthropocene, animals in science fiction, and science fiction archives. The last section is on science fiction media, and it includes essays on comics, metafiction, and science fiction theater. Many of these works, but not all of them, are overviews. Some of them use specific works as their main focus, as a window into a larger topic. For example, the essay on gender roles and sexism by Alec Charles is about the 13th Doctor in Doctor Who, who began in 2017. The essay on Australian science fiction by Christopher B. Menadou specifically looks at storytelling in George Miller's Mad Max from 1979 to 2015 and Ryan Griffin's Clever Man from 2016 to 2017. So, as you can see, this was designed to give you a little bit of everything and also to give, as a whole, a sense of the depth, breadth, history, and future of the genre. And now, if I may, I would like to talk a bit about my piece in here on indigenous futurisms. I know that I've talked a bit about indigenous science fiction previously in past episodes, but I'd like to just give you a sense of how I was trying to frame the larger issue of this subgenre, this movement, really, that kind of became self-aware as a movement in 2012. That was when Anishinaabe scholar Grace L. Dillon edited Walking the Clouds, an anthology of indigenous science fiction. And in her introduction to that book, she asks, Does SF have the capacity to envision native futures, indigenous hopes and dreams, recovered by rethinking the past in a new framework? And... She implies that those native creators who answer in the affirmative are engaged in and with indigenous futurisms. And by doing so, they, and I'm quoting her again, sometimes experiment, sometimes intentionally dislodge, sometimes merely accompany, but invariably change the perimeters of SF. In my essay, I point out that we had the literature of indigenous futurisms, quite a long time before we had that label. But Grace Dillon knew that too, and actually brought some of the previous great native authors of science fiction into the tradition, recognizing that indigenous futurisms was in fact a movement with a past already that was already built on strong foundations. And I frame the goal or the purpose behind indigenous futurisms as both challenging colonialist tropes and also telling sovereign stories. So what's the first part of that? Well, the first part is that these works sort of push back 
against a legacy of colonialism. Because, like it or not, the development of science fiction, a genre whose protagonists have so often been depicted as explorers, pioneers, colonists, is closely tied to a kind of problematic concept of the frontier, one that's tied to the ongoing mythologizing of the American West. The concept of the frontier is often completely devoid of the idea that there are inhabitants there before incursion, before colonialism, or they offer tales of subjugation and conquest framed as winning or taming the frontier, right? Kind of a victory of the superior over the inferior, or the civilized over the primitive. Cherokee scholar and author Daniel Heath Justice frames the challenge this way in Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, which was published in 2018. If the colonial imaginary is predicated on a fiction of indigenous deficiency and absence, an empty frontier awaiting white supremacy to give it shape and substance, then what alternative does the escapist indigenous imaginary offer to us as readers and bearers of story? And the answer to that seems to be to both push back against colonialist tropes and also to tell sovereign stories. I, I discuss at some length and would really recommend checking it out if you haven't read it, Strange Horizons January 2017 Roundtable on Indigenous Futurisms. That is online for free. Thank you, Strange Horizons. And in that, Darcy Little Badger, a Lapan Apache professional scientist with a PhD in oceanography, and also author of Indigenous Futurisms, short stories, comics, and coming soon, a novel. She points out how being pushed to the past tense as a Native person made her yearn for the kind of opportunity that future tense stories provide. And she says, I think that imagining a future, period, is a great start. The reality is many indigenous cultures in North America survived an apocalypse. The key word is survived. Any future with us in it, triumphant and flourishing, is a hopeful one. She was joined in that roundtable with Anishinaabe and Métis author Elizabeth LaPonce, O.K. Wenge Pueblo author Rebecca Roanhorse, and Oto, Missouri and Choctaw creator Johnny Jay, who was a, one of the founders of a tribe called Geek, providing indigenerdity for the geeks at the powwow, as that platform says. I also recommend checking out the A Tribe Called Geek website. And these creators talk about how indigenous science fiction has something to offer the fiction side of science fiction and also the science side of science fiction. And what do I mean by sovereign stories? Well, I look in this essay at how indigenous futurisms is a movement, a self-aware movement, that has yielded story collections by single authors and anthologies with multiple contributors, novels, comics, films, critical conversations, events like Indigenous Comic Con, and some truly touchstone works just in the last couple of years that exemplify what sovereign stories would look like, do look like. 
taking Native stories out of the collective museum of the mainstream mind and making Native realities at home in the present and in the future, and even retelling the past in a different way. I provide something of a reading list for those who are interested and want to read more. And in particular, as an example of what I'm talking about, I discuss the 2018 novel Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. It effectively draws on Navajo traditions, ancient and modern, to tell a story that's set in the very near future. Okay, not tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, but maybe next week in Dineta, in the Navajo Nation. And the central conflict is not one between, say, mainstream U.S. society or white society and natives. On the contrary, the Navajo Nation is wholly sufficient to provide all the tale requires, including heroes and villains and those in between. In short, my essay is in part tour guide, in part historian, in part critic, and in part the one who hopefully suggests books for your to-be-read pile. The big takeaway, I think, is that works of indigenous futurisms challenge colonialist narratives and supply new, sovereign ones, making a space for indigenous futures, and in the process bring a lot to feed, again, both the science and the fiction of science fiction. In true science fiction tradition, they are thought-provoking, and imaginative agents of change. And I end with one of my very favorite quotes. It's from, again, Daniel Heath Justice's Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. And he is here considering the stories of indigenous futurisms, which make up part of what he terms wonder works. And he proposes that these stories matter very much indeed. He says, They give us a future, even if it's only an imagined one. But without that imagined possibility, it's all too easy to believe we don't belong there, and that's a road to a very frightening place indeed. Indigenous writers continue to produce works that articulate and even anticipate our potential for transformative change, if only we bring to it the best of our imaginative selves. Freedom of love, of desire, of life, culture, and political survival, these are only realized through the linking of our courage to our imaginations. We can't possibly live otherwise until we first imagine otherwise. And yes, I have that up on the wall of my office. <laughs> we can't possibly live otherwise until we first imagine otherwise, because really that strikes me in a lot of ways as a very important mission right now of science fiction and the speculative literature community. And in the case of indigenous futurisms, I think this is a literature or literatures of hope and of resilience and of power. And I'm very excited to see the growth of events like Indigenous Comic Con and the way that people who are involved in this movement are A, gaining mainstream recognition, hence the Hugo 
Nebula and Campbell Awards, won by Rebecca Roanhorse, and B, reaching out to build bridges. For example, there is going to be an upcoming Indigenous Comic-Con held in Australia, connecting to the Aboriginal community there, indigeneity across borders, encouraging, uplifting, challenging, and empowering Indigenous readers. I think about, for example, how Lipanapache author Darcy Little Badger has talked about not seeing herself in the literature that she read when she was a girl, and in fact, finding works that suggested that her people were extinct. And now she is writing about people from her own nation going to Mars. Imagine what that could mean for the next little girl who picks up that story and reads it. And lastly, speaking to a wide audience and enriching the genre in which these stories find themselves. So I do hope you might check out Sci-Fi A Companion, and I will probably be talking more about this topic in the future. I not only teach this now and write about it, but I do have a couple of guest talks at some other universities I've been invited to give, and I'm really excited about the momentum behind an interest in this topic. And I'd like to end this by thanking the editor, Jack Fennell, for inviting me to contribute this piece and inviting all of you to check it out. If anyone is interested in my bibliography that sort of doubles as a recommended reading list, please give me a shout, let me know, and I can send it to you or I can post it online. And I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we're together again for another look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go, Amy. It is lovely. We're still there cheering them out, Lasse. What did you think the Mandalorian? Let us know. Drop us an email. <laughs> right then, that is it. Don't forget, it's a new year, so we are getting pretty low on funds. It's not that we, we have lost nearly, well, towards, you know how I was aiming for 500 for the actual Patreon? We're now down, we're near, we're, well, I guess it's over 100 we've lost in, since that time I've stopped mentioning it. So please, if you can, come over to Patreon and support it. That would be fantastic. We need to kind of get, get back on track for the new year. So look after yourselves. Take good care. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moving, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly to you anytime soon can you reach me is my signal getting through turn on your radio i want to talk to you this signal's going light speed by the time i get my say i might already be on to you and on my way but you're so far from here 
And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.